If you've been riding along with me for a while, by now you've probably forgotten I opened this season with a quote from Amarillo photographer Jim Livingston. There's so many stories on Route 66 that um, are going to disappear. And so one of the most valuable things I think about traveling Route 66 is to hear people's stories. That may be the most magical part of Route 66. A bearded, bespectacled, unassuming Odysseus. Having devoted much of his life to social work and helping others navigate their mental health, he picked up a camera when he found it was time to work on his. There's some ugly stuff in America, really ugly, ugly stuff in America, and I had become hugely cynical. And, um, you know, part of the reason I had to jump ship was I was the most bitter, cynical human being in the world, and I needed to reframe the world. I needed to see what was beautiful about the world. And so my little half-inch viewfinder became this magic window that I could focus on nothing but what was beautiful. He tells me this was almost a reactionary act, as shooting landscapes, sunsets, and passing trains gave him the chance to distance himself a bit from people. Yet ironically, he would end up photographing more than 1,600 and driving over 25,000 miles after sparking upon an idea when taking in the scene at a local cafe. 2015, um, I was in a coffee shop on Route 66. And it was crazy. You'd have a biker, like a real biker, you know, skinned up knuckles and, you know, um, and then you'd have a doctor and then you'd have an artist and then you'd have a soccer mom. And I was thinking to myself, this is really crazy that you have this eclectic group of people. And so I was originally going to do a, just a portrait series to show how eclectic this group of artists, this group of um, customers were. But what I realized Part of what made that original magic was that eclectic group of people were there traveling Route 66. And so that's when I attached the, the whole project to Route 66. The, thing, the big thing that I learned about just doing the portraits was a portrait of a stranger is just a stranger. Unless there's something to connect you to that person, it's just, even if they're the most interesting person in the world, you know, it's, it's somebody else's mom, it's somebody else's, there's no connection. And so I started asking questions. Those three questions seemed to resonate with just about everybody. Those questions he settled on asking his subjects to complete were, I am, I regret, and before I die. Eventually he titled the whole series The I Am Project. And after taking my picture, I told him I was an old soul, that I regretted the ways I'd behaved and treated people when hungry, and that before I died, I wanted to get paid for my work. But the truth is, if you ask me those questions on any given day, I might come up with different answers. And as I entered the final stretch of this trip, I found myself circling back to them. I mean, inevitably, when you reach the end of something big, you can't help but get a little introspective. And if you're driving east to west, the spiritual endpoint of Route 66 is the Santa Monica Pier. So, naturally... We're concluding this season there. And yes, we might even get a little reflective. I'm Evan Stern, and this is Vanishing Postcards. Before we get started, let me ask, have you ever gotten a wrong email? Sure you have. We all have. But have you ever gotten a wrong email from a vengeful, one-eyed British curmudgeon on a decades-long mission to have his brother thrown in jail? Well, 
I'm here to tell you about a nonfiction podcast I really enjoyed called Square Peg. In 2017, an American suburban dad named Rob Collins accidentally got sucked into this bizarre world of Frank Carver and went on a two-year quest to help Frank and learn the truth. It's a riveting roller coaster ride with international travel, military scandal, and lots of garlic and Guinness. You can binge all eight episodes now if you search for Square Peg in your podcast app or go to squarepegpodcast.com. And now, let's get back to the show. Urging the necessity of an interstate highway system, President Eisenhower proclaimed to Congress in 1955, Together, the uniting forces of our communication and transportation systems are dynamic elements in the very name we bear, United States. Without them, we would be a mere alliance of many separate parts. And while I believe our highways are necessary, sitting in traffic on LA's 101, I question how true these words proved. Over 10 million live here, but... I'm always surprised by how isolating this megalopolis can feel. And if these roads were born of the freedom promised by a car in every garage, this smog and gridlock remind me of its costs. Yet Los Angeles, for all its faults, still tempts me. And Buddy Baloo argues there's good reason for that. For me, it's paradise. I came from New York where it's freezing. I love California. I love the sun sun in January. I love no snow. Uh, It's just a calmer, quieter tempo. Blue skies. In New York, you look up to the sky and you see like a four four by four inch square of blue. Here, it's a blanket. It's God's blanket. It's beautiful. Beautiful. Seeing as that it's December 8th and we're both in short sleeves, standing under a cloudless blue sky, it's hard to argue otherwise. We're talking about 55 feet above the Pacific, uh, approaching the far side of the Santa Monica Pier, where Buddy brings his trumpet most every day to busk from 10 to 2. I'm just giving what God gifted me, that's all. And, and people appreciate it. And the pier is like um, playing at a circus. It's like a carnival. And I actually wrote a voiceover piece about it saying, you know, when I was a boy, I wanted to run away from home and, leave, and join the circus. And then I, when I moved to Santa Monica, I realized I, I arrived. And, um, but now I'd like to run away from the circus and join the movie circus. And then I realized it's all a circus, but it's beautiful. The only thing the piers missing are the tigers and the bears and the horses and the lions. I was, I was playing here, looked over, and a big giant sea turtle came up. About two weeks ago, every animal showed up because there was a feeding frenzy. And it was like laid out like a blanket of fi- uh, birds and fish and everybody and they were feeding and it moved all the way over here. There were seals, there were every, uh, pelicans, every bird, every, I mean, it was so cool. That's what I love and just to be by the sea. And if I could get a little shack right over there, I'd live there, it's just too expensive right now. That's why we want to get in the movies and then we can afford a little place overlooking the sea. Short and fit with a solid head of hair and sprightly energy that could fool you into thinking he's a lot younger than his age. It's been a long time since Buddy's been in front of the cameras. But that doesn't seem to trouble him or keep him from dreaming of forging a path in the biz. I I have surrendered. I was born in Southside Chicago where Route 66 begins. I just turned 70 and now I'm at the end of it. I mean, if that doesn't tell me born in Chicago and I end up at the end of it, you know, I opened my parachute and where did I land? At the end of Route 66. And I started in the beginning, so... 
for me, it's just serendipity and meant to be. You know, there's there's uh, kismet. An accomplished dancer who worked with Baryshnikov at the ABT and spent 12 years on Broadway as a member of a chorus line, I trust Buddy when he says he's surrendered. But it's also obvious he appreciates the possibilities Los Angeles offers. And know that's a big part of why he and other dreamers continue to land here. When I asked Scott Piotrowski how much of the Roots magic is fed by virtue of the fact it ends in L.A., he says all of it. Well, let's talk about the differences between the Lincoln Highway or 99 even to some extent or Yellowstone Trail. or I mean, it doesn't matter to me. Pick your road, right? The only one that ends in L.A. is 66. And what makes that different is that the people who wanted to talk about the road, who talk about their travels on the road, came out here and they had a voice. You know, they were writers, they were actors, they were singers. And by being in Los Angeles and Hollywood, they had a voice for themselves already. I mean, Bobby Troop is the perfect example. I mean, if he wasn't coming to L.A., to Hollywood, we wouldn't have the song. How many other of the highways have a song? L.A. is the answer to Route 66. It doesn't really matter what the question is. L.A. is the answer. Can you tell I'm a little bit passionate about my city? An Ohio-born filmmaker who drove here in 96, never to look back. For Scott, Route 66 serves as a conduit for his passion for all things L.A. I know that in terms of Route 66, a lot of people kind of give Los Angeles a, a bad rap because of the traffic and because of the density and because they feel like Los Angeles doesn't do its, its share to preserve history. But the reality is there are over 100 National Register of Historic Places landmarks within the Route 66 corridor in L.A. County. And there are literally thousands of local landmarks in that corridor as well. So when people talk about there's not enough to see or do along 66 in L.A., the reality is there's more density of, of 66 and things to see and do along 66 in L.A. than on any other part of the road. Still, for most driving the route, the most iconic site that comes to mind here is the Santa Monica Pier, which, despite the old alignment's official end, has evolved into something of a symbolic capstone. We know factually where the road ended, where the termini were at different times. And the Santa Monica Pier was never officially a part of Route 66. I think anybody who denies that is just denying facts and history. Now, that being said, we routinely talk about going to the Grand Canyon while taking your trip on Route 66. We talk about Merrimack Caverns as being a part of a Route 66 trip, and that's not on the road. So we can certainly allow that the, the spiritual endpoint of your Route 66 journey is going to be at the Pacific Ocean and is logically going to be the Santa Monica Pier. There's really no question that if you come 2,400 miles, you're not going to stop a mile away from the ocean and say, okay, I'm done, and turn around and go back. That would be kind of silly. Um, but yeah, I think the important thing for me is we talk about the end point, we talk about where people are going to go, but we're certainly, we certainly can't disavow the actual history that's there. Well, regardless of the technicalities of history, that doesn't stop me from snapping a picture at the end of the trail sign, which is now a rite of passage for anyone who makes it this far. But a little further beyond this marker, I find Santa Monica bait and tackle, whose owner, Manny Mendelson, Scott tells me, has been a fixture on the pier for over 30 years. 
he's got the last shop on the pier. So when you talk about the pier being the, the symbolic ending of the road, um, Manny's the symbolic end. You know, he's, he's the last stop on the pier. And it's just, you know, if you're taking the trip and you're doing the whole thing and you're considering the pier to be your last stop, Manny's your last stop. And, and you just got to appreciate what he's done the idea of a mom and pop shop on the road he's he's lived that for 30 35 years 40 years what however long it's been now so we talk about route 66 being about mom and pop places and local landmarks and staying away from your big boxes and everything and i think manny kind of epitomizes that removed from the amusement parks raucous arcades and carnival games about a thousand feet past the tide line Fishermen cast lures from the pier's lower deck. The ages and races are varied. Some are weathered, while a few have probably never picked up rods before. But it's an altogether peaceful scene that Manny grew up around. I grew up here in Santa Monica, and my grandmother uh, used to work on the old pier. The pier was nothing like it was before because there was no amusement park, and you know, you would see a handful of people out there in a day. And there were there were characters out there like uh, there was this one lady who would who was fishing with a coat hanger, and um, she had a clump of the mussel that you see hanging on all the pilings, and the lady would catch these giant fish because the fish would come over and they they thought that those mussel were part of the piling, and they would be, I mean they they all had their uh, their own characters that's for sure and. I used to work for the city of Santa Monica. I was a trash man for five years, and then I went to the city of Beverly Hills for two years. I got rear-ended and taken away in an ambulance. I had back surgery. After my back surgery, I couldn't return to work. But uh, what happened was uh, I started, I, I would see fishermen coming out here, and I go, here, let me get you some hooks and weights and bait and stuff. Let me... Uh, accommodate the fishermen there's nobody there's not a bait and tackle shop here anymore so i started doing that i put a little freezer in there i was selling bait i was selling hooks and weights and the city came to me and goes hey we're gonna have a place at the end of the pier allotted for a bait and tackle shop would you like to sell your hooks and weights out of there i go what a blessing you know so that's how i obtained this that was in 1990 and while tchotchke vendors have come and gone Manny and his simple weather-worn shop have remained constant. It's a public pier. It's the only place in California that you don't need a fishing license to fish off of. When they had the recession, that's when they started that, where people could come out and get some food without having to spend a lot of money. I happen to have all the accommodations for fishing. We rent poles. I've charged the same price as long as I've been in business over 30 years. We charge $4 an hour to rent a rod. I think that's what it's all about, life. What life's all about is not what you receive, it's what you give. And if uh, you could do acts of kindness and people remember something, then uh, hopefully they can do the same thing. Now in his 50s, with the beer belly and graying light brown mustache, Manny credits a lot of this wisdom to artist and cartographer Bob Waldmeyer who one day entered his shop to offer some postcards for sale. I met Bob back in uh, 1990 when I first opened. He would come out here and he would he would sit across the way and he would doing sketches and stuff. And 
Um, just his personality and everything was, I mean, there's was so many that I look forward to, like a mentor and stuff. And then, you know, back then I was probably 25 years old or something, and everything was like going through one ear and out the other. But uh, he did uh, influence me a lot in everything that I've done here. Born near the war's end in Springfield, Illinois, Bob spent years sketching playful, exceedingly detailed bird's eye maps of 66 while driving it in a customized 72 VW bus. An itinerant hippie, he inspired the George Carlin voice character of Fillmore in Cars, but was perhaps most eloquently described by Michael Wallace, who called him the Johnny Appleseed of the Mother Road. Bob's seeds, Michael says, were in the form of his work that he deposited so lovingly across whole dimensions of Route 66. Scott got to know Bob when he was living in Hackberry, Arizona, and speaking of him today still brings a shine to his eyes. Bob was kind of the epitome of a hippie traveling artist, I guess you would say. Um, He didn't like to sit still. He didn't like to be in one place, I don't think. He liked being alone. You know, he didn't didn't like being around a lot of people, which made L.A. kind of difficult for him. The last time that I saw him was on his last Route 66 trip. I spent some time with him in Santa Monica at the beach there. And uh, we talked a lot about what he, he had done and his life and, and his experiences on the road in particular. And just I, I really loved being around him just because it was always a... Uh, a different perspective for me and a different view of the road and just a chance to, I guess, be free, you know? It's like you kind of let go of everything when you're with him and the problems go away, the, the city life goes away and the tra- you know, the traveling, the, the cars go away. And just kind of, for me with him, it was just sitting there and having a conversation and, and not worrying about anything else. Manny shared a deep bond with Bob as well and near the end in 2009, traveled to Illinois to say goodbye in person. I went back on uh, December the 2nd. He passed away on December 16th. So uh, when I went back there, yeah, I was was very, very fortunate. His his two brothers were there, and uh, there were were visitors from all over the world. The brothers were only letting them stay there like 10 minutes, and I go, yeah, I better leave, Bob. And he goes, no, you're my friend. You're going to stay. And I ended up staying the whole day, you know. And uh, and uh, he gave me a rock that was a piece of uh, Route 66. And I remember, you know, I was sitting on the bed with him, and he put his legs up, and he got some white out, and he made a Route 66 shield on there, and he wrote some stuff to me. And uh, I just remember how skinny he was and stuff, and it was so sad. Um, so I got on my knees, I was praying, and uh, um, so when I got back, Bob called me and he goes, uh, hey, did, how'd the rock make it back? I go, well, Bob, I, go, I was going through the airport and they, they rubbed some stuff on it to make sure it wasn't a bomb, and some of that stuff got smeared and stuff. This was on the, uh, this was on the 14th of December, two days before he died, and uh, he goes, I'm going to send you another one. So he got a smooth rock. So he sent me this other one, so I, I claim to have his last piece of artwork, so I'm very, very honored, and I want to try to be an influence like Bob was. Remarking on the outpouring of love he received in these final days, Bob joked, Had I known how good getting sick was going to be, I'd have done it earlier. 
before adding he couldn't imagine having lived a richer life. Following death, as per his specific instructions, half of his ashes were buried with his parents in Illinois, while the other half were deposited at various points along Route 66. Some were dropped from the Chain Lake Bridge near Chicago, others in his beloved Chiricahua Mountains. And after scattering what remained in the Pacific's waves, Bob's brother Buzz reserved a portion to give to Manny, who keeps them in a glass-cased memorial he built outside his shop. I have some of his ashes out here, pretty honored. He, he knew a lot more than I did, and he's the one that encouraged me and told me what I had. This is my backbone. This is, uh, yeah, I take a lot of pride in everything, especially being part of Route 66 and, and knowing all about it with everybody that's out there and everything that they represent. There's all aspects of life coming out here. And, you know, what's really interesting about it is you ask people where they're from and somebody will tell you Brazil, the next person to come in will say, I'm from Texas. And just, uh, Curious to what drew them to this place. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be here as long as the good Lord allows me in the city, keeps me here. In addition to Bob's ashes, the tribute houses articles, postcards, photos, an Illinois license plate bearing his portrait, and a few of his signature maps of '66. It's a failure of my research. I somehow overlooked Mr. Waldmeyer until now, but whether I noticed or not realize his work was present all along the way. I photographed a mural of his in Tucumcari without knowing what I was looking at, and later discover I missed drawings he left at the Rock Cafe in Stroud, Angel's Barbershop in Seligman, and La Posada in Winslow. More than Johnny Appleseed, Michael Wallace also says that Bob is the conscious of all road warriors on 66, and right now, I hear my conscience tell me that as much as I've seen and experienced, there's a lot I haven't come close to touching, which is something he told me to expect before my drive even began. I've traveled it, I cannot tell you how many times. And every time I go out on the road, I find something new. Every time. More importantly, I find someone new. I turn over a rock and another genie emerges every time. It, it also represents not only what America used to be, but what it is now and what it can become. And also, this is a very important part of that. I can see in my mind's eye a lot of things, but in my mind's eye, like right now, I'm looking at Route 66. I'm looking at it coming out of the bowels of Chicago, winding all the way across the country. And I see it. I see a road anchored by two big blue states, but mostly red states in between, which means the road runs purple, or should run purple. But I also don't see these things. I don't see state lines. I don't see county borders. I don't see city limits. I see a seamless linear village all the way across two-thirds of the continent. And on that village is this family, and sometimes it is so damn dysfunctional you can't believe it. 
we who really understand the history, the culture of the road, also believe the road has an obligation to live up to its publicity. So it, it cannot deny its past. It's a road of humanity. And that's why you tell the whole story. The good, the bad, the ugly, the black and the white, the shades of gray. That's all, that's all part of, of the story. This is a story I have tried to tell. And Jim Hinckley warned me about succumbing to nostalgia as well. We have a tendency to get myopic and, and focus on neon and tail fins. But Route 66 has morphed into a, uh, an odd blending. It's, it's, uh, it's a living time capsule, an honest-to-God living museum with a thin overlay of Disneyland. And uh, to be honest, Route 66 today is better than ever, I think. Uh, when Route 66 was Route 66, like when you went up through Oatman, picture that road with a million cars a year on it. What a nightmare. And driving Route 66, even in the 60s and early 70s, bumper to bumper traffic, no shoulders. You got some guy with a 40 year old truck pulling hay, and then this guy with a Corvette trying to get around everybody. You know, most of it was a white knuckle drive. It was just no fun. And now you can, you can do both. You're in a hurry, get on the interstate. You want to enjoy life and see America slow things down, you get on Route 66. I can attest that whenever I felt like rushing on this trip, Route 66 had a way of getting me to ease up on the pedal. And my contemporary Reese Martin agrees, that's its beauty. To me, Route 66 represents what's great about this country. Um, things are so divisive these days, and... You know, with access to information around the world comes access to everything. And it's easy to get caught up in bad news. It's easy to get caught up in things that are stressful. It's easy to lose sight of the things that are special. And really, for me, when I boil everything down, the most special commodity that we have is time. And when you take a trip on Route 66, you get time. You meet people, you hear these stories, folks that are, you know, just really great everyday folks that wave to you from the car even though they've never seen you before. Um, you get these great meals that are prepared in these cafes and that's the only place you can get that meal. Um, it's not cookie cutter. And if you take a trip with family or friends, whoever's in the passenger seat with you, you get time with them. And when we look up another 25 years from now, Route 66 will be as vibrant and as commercially important as it used to be. But even if it only exists as, a, as an open-air museum, it's still time. But good or bad, time does exist. And while the journey never really ends, my time on this leg is nearing its conclusion. I thank Manny. He gives me a hat. I walk to the pier's end, then... Look out and breathe in the Pacific's expanse. I feel like books and movies have taught us that in moments like these, our minds open to some meditative stroke of transcendence. But the truth is, I hear nothing, feel little other than the breeze, and am happy just to gaze at the view. When I've had enough, I start walking back, and am happy to find Buddy and his trumpet sitting where I'd left him earlier this morning. See, something I'll tell you I what, since I'm in L.A., something I wrote? since you're in L.A., can you maybe give us the uh, love theme from Chinatown? Nope, don't no? know it. 
You don't know it. Nice try. No. Nice try? Nice. No, I don't know that. See, I figured, see, being in L.A., I figured you should know that. No, 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 not yeah. at all. It's going to take a lot more than five years to know that. I, I didn't come here with, like, what, looking at the dictionary of what L.A. is. I'm, I'm just discovering it like a newborn baby. So what do you feel moved to play now? Well, I, I don't know. Let me check my pulse. Well, I'm happy. This is called What I Did for Love. As a theater fanatic, it's probably sacrilegious for me to confess that A Chorus Line has never been my favorite musical and have thought What I Did for Love to be one of Broadway's sappier 11 o'clock numbers. But right now, Buddy's choice is perfect. And not because of his connection to the show, but because this trip has been a love project. Yes, bank accounts have been drained, gray hairs have grown, and pounds gained since the start, but this drive is something I had to do before I died. And I won't forget, can't regret, what I did for love. Thanks to all who shared with me to not only make this episode, but entire season happen. If you make it to the pier, please pay Manny a visit and keep your eye out for Buddy. Also got to give a shout out to Hunter Ventura, who was playing on the pier the day of my visit and whom you could hear in the background. Most crucially, thank you for listening. It means the world, truly. If you like what we're doing, keep sharing with your friends and loved ones. And keep following the show because I'm excited to report I'll be taking you with me on the road again for an all-new trip this spring. Until then, for photos and more, find us on Instagram or vanishingpostcards.com where you're always welcome to reach out. Our theme music, which you're hearing now, was written and performed by Max Krause and Emily Young. I'm Evan Stern, and hope you'll join us next time for more Vanishing Postcards. Postcards.